0: Hi Effie. welcome
1: hello thank Hi. you
0: um, maybe we should start with the with the travels or with the with the traveling because I think this whole or this whole cycle of diaspora suite kind of in a way documents your travels. What I'm wondering is uh did you first decide that you're going to document the travels, or like while traveling, you decided to kind of group it around the the topic of the diaspora so. How did that
1: right. work Right, um, great, great question. Um, no, I didn't start out with the idea of, of uh, shooting my, my travels. In fact, I was having coffee with someone earlier and I was saying I got involved in filmmaking before I had any idea that there was a whole experimental film universe. So I just became disinterested in commercial cinema once I started to learn how to make it. It was like, oh, this is what this is? And so, you know, I started to want to do other types of things, and I had been traveling a lot, and, uh, and it was later that I saw films by people like, you know, Jonas Mekas, for instance, who just passed, and thought, wait, those are types of movies as well? And, uh, and I had had all these experiences, and so um, that was something that kind of came later. But for this particular set of films, um, I was still kind of making my mind up, and you can see in American Hunger that I still... Um, I'm not so interested in commercial cinema, but I flirt with narrative all the time. Um, And so um, I had made a film, I had this intention of making a short film using a cinematographer, and then I had actually bought a plane ticket to Ethiopia, and I was going to bring a Bolex camera and teach myself how to shoot when I arrived. Um, So I had all this film stock, and I had the camera, and I was going to go there and just stay for a while. Um, And I was actually already on the plane when it occurred to me that I could, match the short film um that was kind of autobiographical that i shot while i was living in harlem i could cut those images with what i was doing in ethiopia as a sort of afterthought um and so when i made american hunger i i liked the process and so i said oh i want to try that again but start from the beginning deliberately making a film where i shoot half of it in the states and half of it in africa and so that's kind of where uh american hunger came from so it was very sort of organic process but by the time of shooting this film um yeah or the first one the first american hunger the first one we watched this evening um afternoon um it's dark in here you know um <laughs> it's an evening kind of lighting um anyhow you know by the time that i uh, shot that i had already shot all of the scenes in philadelphia new jersey and so i was in ghana knowing okay you know what may or may not be worth shooting which is important when you're shooting on film because it's a limited supply
0: yeah i mean you shoot with 16 so both of these were fil- is the, the whole cycle is film with the 16 so um i think i read somewhere you said the Janie leota kind of the, was <laughs> yeah. uh, your teacher and she kind of introduced you to the filmmaking 16 but that that must be very different kind of concentration than than when making a video as you say you really need to know kind of um you need to choose your 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 focus, right? It's a bit different than absolutely,
1: than yeah. absolutely, yeah. I had uh, gone into to grad school, um, um, making moving image work, and I started to get introduced to work um, by artists like like Tony Cox, who happens to be sitting here showing work. You know, I saw Tony's work. I see other work, which I immediately gravitated uh, toward, but. Uh, For me, video and very expansive mediums, they're very dangerous because I have the mind that wants to try every single possibility of what you can do with the technology. And so I found that my work was just too much when I was working in video. And if you were to see some of it, in comparison to what I do now, it's just like every color, everything that can happen happens um, with the the software. And so... um, so for me, um, as I started to have this impulse to simplify and strip down my art practice, um, Jeannie was always kind of there, I'd be like, you know, maybe you should try film, maybe, I don't know, you know. And um, so at a certain point, I stopped making moving image work altogether, and was just kind of making object art and sound and other other sorts of things, and then um, I had kind of reached what I felt like a dead end with video, um, and it was at that point that I decided that I would capture images again, but I tried it with film, and mm-hmm. that's what I've been doing for like about ten years since. Yeah. yeah.
0: So you said you mentioned Ethiopia. Was that uh, that was one of your first travels, right, to to African continent? Right? Yes. Yeah. I, I think I read somewhere that you said that like that was a big shocker. That that was quite uh, something. Could you maybe talk about that a bit? Because I think in this in the American Hunger, you mentioned this kind of. Um, a traveler travels somewhere, and then the space is largely in his head, you know. Uh, it, it, so, w- what I'm what I'm getting at is this kind of the expectation of a place and the reality of it, like maybe something. Wrong. Sure,
1: sure, absolutely. I mean, the whole process of making the suite in general was very much about the situation of the overwhelming majority of African Americans, which is knowing very clearly that you have a heritage related to um Africa that that's the origins of you know uh the people that ended up in the United States but on the other hand feeling totally you know in a practical sense disconnected not knowing specifically from where or what cultures or customs and so we sort of have this uh amalgam of culture uh that we call African American culture which is very lovely um in many ways but in order to have such a sort of like a, a sense of a homogenized culture one has to construct a narrative. You have to have a mass, you know, conventional narrative to abide by, which, you know, um, sometimes goes something like, we were all kings and queens, and then we, you know, ended up in slavery, and then so forth and so on. That's one type of narrative, which is a positive one. Most of them have been not made by African-American people and very negative. They're stereotypes of what Africa is, um, and then that's also part of the sort of American way of thinking. And so for myself, having spent a lot of time very much in the sort of um, very positive view um, of what it means to be African American and this idea that you hail from this very wonderful place, which is true, um, but at the same time one has to deal, I mean if you're being realistic and living in this real world that we're in, you have to deal with the reality of the place. So that for me, you know, obviously you have to have the means to do that, which for me was using my like grad school loan money to fund the first couple of movies. Um, but again, it's like okay, I have someone loan me five thousand dollars, say, then it just at that moment it was like I just need to go to Africa so that I can shatter any sense of illusion you know it's like I'd rather just have a really bad experience than some fantasy experience of what I think it represents to me like I need that representation like I need to know what places smell like and what the ground feels like to touch etc how the light works when you put your camera there anyway I um wanted it wasn't so much that I had this expectation of it being really wonderful or anything I just didn't have one um and I had traveled you know I'd been to Brazil and parts of the Caribbean and whatnot but it was just like to be very plain about it, it was just totally different. Like the alphabet was different. The, just, I'd never been, and to this day, I've never been anywhere that was so different than where I'm from um, in every way. Also, how traditional it still was was also kind of shocking outside of the, the cities. I didn't expect it to be uh, like just this, you know, like to literally see people, like young boys who are like, you know, herding cattle the way that they're, they've been doing for, you know, maybe thousands of years you know, these sorts of things. And it was very normalized culture and the devotion to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church and the way that all worked. It was all much more intact and traditional than I had expected. Um, And then on the other hand, in Addis, in the capital, it was much more sophisticated and in some ways... uh, cosmopolitan wouldn't be the right word but the sort of street hustlers are very sophisticated I'll put it that way Um, to the point of being fascinated for me because there are people who are extremely educated actually and are very worldly you can talk to them about Germany or the Netherlands but these are people who've never spent a day in school you so you kind of you talk to them and or you talk to the very educated people who have studied abroad and go back home with certain sensibilities, and then mostly everyone else doesn't speak English. And so I found myself spending most of my time with these sort of um, street hustlers uh, who, according to me, they would say, the main thing that they would ask you for is actually your travel book. Um, And they would learn, they would study, like they would get together in groups and study these travel books, and they would be able to without actually being real tour guides, like, oh, yeah, if you go here, you take this bus, et cetera. And they would also learn other languages. And so it was a very fascinating thing. Like, you go to Ethiopia and I meet, say, a 20-year-old guy who's, like, obsessed with Frank Sinatra and, like, speaks, you know, perfect English, but has never been to school. And it's like, whoa, (laughs) that's a shock, you know? Um, On the other hand, you see things like... A lot of people have polio, for instance, and they tend to gather around a lot of the churches, and I just had never seen anything like that in person. I don't know how many people have. And not, not to be like, you know, uh, it's obviously something I would never film and make a film, like look at what I've seen. I, I don't shoot these types of images. Nonetheless, to go to a place and just see something like that in a very intense way, uh, it was just, again, um, shocking in a way that Everyone is shocked, but we are also, you know, correct these days. It's like it's a. It's a. I realize that it's not. It's like maybe a bit taboo to say, "Oh, I saw these these terrible things when I traveled in Africa." Um, but the reality is, there are things that most Americans do not see, and they were very there. Like they weren't. I didn't go seeking these things out, and so all sorts of things. It was just, uh, you know, something in terms of that. Like in Ghana, I didn't. Um, in I never passed as a Ghanaian person. In fact, I would often be thought of as maybe white. But in Ethiopia, for the most part, if I was just walking around quietly, no one would would say anything. And so I had, in some ways, a lot of sort of like um, access. And even that was a a type of shock. Uh, And then people would engage. You know, they'd speak to me saying I'm Harik. And then I'd reply in English. And I'd go, you know, there's usually the response. And then they would start with a million questions. And I would explain why I'm in Africa, you know, trying to, explain what I'm doing as a filmmaker and uh, and the response more often than not was oh so like you were adopted and taken to the United States you know and in Europe this kind of conversation works very different than it does in the United States no 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 you don't understand like oh, no, my mom, she moved to Washington, D.C., and so forth. And no, 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 it's not like that. And so also a shock that there wasn't really this disconnect, you know. But they're all wonderful, like, shocks and disconnections that, for me, opened up the series to then keep exploring these and probing these sort of uncomfortable spaces.
0: It's always so complicated with diasporas. Like, I mean, what I'm wondering is how complicating this story gets when you're talking to... Um, people in in your travels anywhere like in Ghana, Ethiopia, and other countries, how complicating is their relation to the states um How complicating is that and what what is there you know like are you there because you might also seem as a tourist there it 's like it's it is this complicating kind of um yeah like do did you, yeah. Did you think about
1: that? Sure, sure. A few years ago I had written an essay. I don't know how many of you know um, the uh, artist Martine Sims. She's a young African American artist. She's wonderful. Um, different different uh, types of mediums. But she has a uh, publisher. She I don't know if she's still running it, but she had a small press and had asked for an essay in relation to one of the films. And I had just finished um, American Hunger and I had been keeping fairly detailed notes, which I usually actually don't do but I happened to be keeping notes when I was in Ghana about just thoughts and uh, you know the really funny thing not unlike going to Ethiopian people just hearing the narrative and automatically pinpointing it to like an adoption uh, like a first generation or maybe a second when I was in Ghana and the minute you say like at the time the minute I'd say oh, I'm from America or something like that um, it would immediately, for the most part, with younger people, the conversation would go right to what was big in hip-hop at that time, which was like the like Making It Rain era with money, and so people would go, oh man, America's very good, you know, African Americans make a lot of money there, like it's just money and fancy cars, Say, so, no, 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 and, you know, it's this funny thing, you know, we see images of Africa on TV, you see us, and in some ways that's kind of there's this image where there are a bunch of children waving, and then there's like a giant like white ice cream cone thing, and to me that's like riffing on those sort of fantasies that we we, we hold about each other, or on another occasion. Um, this kid that was traveling around with me to help me translate in Ghana, I didn't. Another thing, I didn't realize how many languages are spoken in Ghana. You know, during, oh, they speak English or whatever. Which, of course, you know, a lot of people do, but a lot of people don't. And you travel, you know, every few hours, it's a different regional language. Anyway, I had uh, my uh, just a taxi driver. I got a ride from her son was traveling with me, um, and he was convinced I couldn't convince this kid for. The two weeks that he was with me, that Lil Wayne wasn't from Africa, and he's like, "But listen to the way he speaks and his style." I said, "No, but he's like, he's from it's it's New Orleans. It's kind of like Africa, but it's not. It's not. He's not from. He's he's an American." And it was this disconnect, you know. So I mean, these things happen. I mean, yeah, they're really they're really beautiful. If I were to be a narrative director, I would make a comedy about these things, you know. It's like, yeah.
0: But uh, if we go back to the the first film and this, Im- how did you find this image of the? I mean, this um, shattered monument. It, it is such an incredible. I mean, it also functions, of course, as a symbol. Uh, and the speeches uh, from the archive, I guess, it's the first Ghanaian president, right? Yeah,
1: that's so Kham Was Khruma. it
0: something that happened that where, when you were there, you really filmed that?
1: This, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah, this film I made it before I had any. Name as a, a filmmaker or anything, and so it didn't play anywhere, anything like that. And so, um, the first few times that I had noticed it being talked about, it was like uh, in relation to archives, and I thought that's odd, because there's nothing archival, I mean, there's some quotes from books or something, you know, I didn't get it, I I thought, oh, they think that, which is, in a way, deliberate, I mean, I'm trying to kind of reference, like, historic time by just shooting an image to look out of time, so to speak, um, but, yeah, that, that monument, um, which is a memorial site, um, which I didn't know about, I usually don't go to those sorts of places, but, um, it just happened to be next door to where I was staying. Yeah, I make all this stuff up as I go along, so I don't really have a definitive plan, even for the scripted part, so to speak. And so, you know, it was literally next door, and I thought, wow, this is a crazy monument, because um, it was um, destroyed. Like, you know, now Nkrumah's revered again, and he came in revered and then was overthrown and now is back in, uh, viewed generally in a more popular light, um when we look at sort of generally what's happened with the, you know, African leadership uh, in terms of government officials, it's like he looks a lot better than a lot of others uh, do now and did then. Anyway, um, what had happened was that, you know, the statue was knocked over, the head was taken off, it was, you know, uh, defaced, destroyed, and now it's like kind of put back together, but not not completely. Um, as some of you do or don't know, and you see in the movie, I'm an avid sort of like, record nerd and uh, and so I was walking in the markets one day not necessarily looking for records but um, but I was hearing these Nkrumah speeches blaring on a loudspeaker um, which again was like I didn't know what like if you go to Ethiopia and you start talking about Haile Selassie it can be a very polarizing thing depending on who you talk to and I wonder in Ghana is it the same thing you might talk to one person and say Nkrumah was the worst thing ever and then the next person might say no he's the greatest African leader of all time you know and so I was unsure how to deal with it. And so to be walking in the market and hear someone blaring the speeches was like, who's that person? And so that's kind of where that idea had come from. But uh, it turns out this gentleman was also selling records and other things. And so he had CDs of speeches. And so I bought some stuff from him and just threw it it in the movie.
0: But so in the second film, we also see we see that you are also a collector. I mean, these broadside press. How did you come? How did you come up to that? Uh, to that whole story?
1: Yeah, that's another sort of symptom of that collector's gene or whatever they call it—obsession uh, with materials. Um, in that, I had been reading a lot of the poets um, that were published by Broadside. You know, since a, being a teenager, you know, Nikki Giovanni and. Um, uh, sonia sanchez and and the like um and then as i got a little bit older people like audrey Lorde, you know and um but what i didn't realize that all of them had their start with one small press in detroit which i discovered later in reading a book um, on black um literary nationalism and there was a section on detroit and uh and it's like wait a minute all of these poets like got their start which is not to say oh like it's not unusual for one publishing company to publish a lot of great artists, but to actually be the first and in small you know, form. Um, and so I became really interested in that and I um, had a few occasions where I was invited to Detroit to show films. And you know, when I, you know, I would go to a vintage bookstore or something like that. And I started to find originals of these broadsides. Um, and then I started to research the books and realizing that they were selling online sometimes for hundreds of dollars And I had found a few places where I could buy them for $10, $20, $30. So I bought tons of them, anything I could find at a reasonable price. And then after that window of time, yeah, the, the price of them now, if you go and look up some of these books, they're worth a lot of money or they're in archives. And so my idea was simply to take the books back to where they were published and ask people, random people, I didn't know any of the people in that film, like, excuse me, would you like to participate in this film? It's about Detroit and the idea with the publishing company which was uh started by broadside press which um interestingly enough back home um are uh what do they call it the what's the moniker for the new york times the something of choice the record of choice the uh, anyway everyone knows the new york times newspaper uh they're doing these things they're where they're writing obituaries for people they should have when they died right and they did one for dudley randall the Founder of broadside, uh just last week, so I say all of that to say he 's just this unsung uh hero, um but he would publish he was a librarian, and he would take uh twelve dollars from his paycheck and publish poets out of out you know so he was this you know working guy, he was very clearly conscious about the fact that he had some upward mobility as an African American librarian, and his contribution. Uh, to the movement was to just publish radical poets that were young and and coming up, Um, and so these books only cost one dollar, and so I had this sort of fantasy idea that, like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to, like, have been in Detroit back in the day and someone comes off of, you know, working in an auto factory and having a cigarette reading Broadside Press or something. Did that happen? I don't know, you know, Mm -hmm. and so... That was sort of the sort of jumping off point. It's like, yeah, hey, let's just shoot something kind of like that and see what happens. And so often I'm getting people on their work break and that sort of a thing. And um, and so that was that's yeah, sort of process.
0: And the, what what's the relation? Can you tell us a bit maybe about Harriet Tubman and what's her relation with Detroit? There is also a relation there,
1: right? A- a- absolutely. Um, well, the thing with 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 Harriet Tubman and I, I I learned this two years ago when I showed Fluid Frontiers in Rotterdam, which is that. Not everyone knows who Harriet Tubman is outside of the United States. Ha <laughs> You were there. Okay. Yeah,
0: you did ask us in the okay. audience. Okay, and it was, it was odd. Yeah. So
1: okay. Harriet Tubman, just to be clear, was um, a woman who was enslaved in the United States who freed herself and then made, I don't know exactly how many, but many, many trips back to where she left from to liberate people. And she would guide them to the north of the United States and sometimes to to Canada, you know, risking her life. There was literally, like, a bounty on her head the entire time she was doing this. um, And she was often doing this, like, you know, alone or, you know, very, very few resources, like, literally walking in and out of these places and, and transporting these people from certain parts of the United States, the shortest distance, to Canada um, is going through Detroit. And Detroit is a very historically famous African-American community, but that community developed during this window of time when people were going there. And what would happen is Canada is separated from the United States by a relatively small or narrow river, and back in the day it would freeze over. And so people would walk over the frozen river Um, during the winters and and some people couldn't make it or for whatever reasons ended up staying in in Detroit and so there's this direct connection to the Underground Railroad um, in Detroit and this sort of history of resistance that's always been there and is still there and we still talk about it in relation to art and techno music etc and so this very deep sort of hub of of, uh, independence and cultural resistance in Detroit and so what actually ended up happening um, was that I was in Detroit and Windsor, Ontario shooting the film and again I was just in a record store and I pulled out a record and it was Margaret Walker who happened to have been a broadside poet reading her poems and I was staying in Canada when I was working and that poem I put it on the, the turntable and it's her reading about Harriet Tubman and she's saying come to Canada and I'm watching this or uh, the river as I'm re- listening to this and I had brought some of my music recording equipment so I had recorded the vocals from the it's just her reading the poem and then I started making loops of other sounds and that's kind of how I put the score together but again it kind of directly fit into the broadside thing and it's a part of my sort of improvisation of like oh found this thing just throw it in the movie somehow make it work yeah
0: do we maybe have some comments or questions from the audience what I'm also interested is um, is this kind of what you see in both films is almost like a um, like a portraiture like you do a lot of like shots where you, you just like f- film people as like their portraits. Can you talk a bit about that? Is it something intentional or is it something that you also like improvise and you see someone interesting and you just want to capture them
1: um, yeah it's very intentional it's also often improvised. I mean, in the beginning of doing that sort of a thing, I wanted it to be very clear to the audience watching a film, that I am actually engaged with the people that I'm filming. I'm not just sitting in my car, you know, on some balcony. I mean, of course, I do that as well sometimes, but that I'm actually out in the streets with the people and we're having a a dialogue, you know. And for me, that's, I mean, you could represent that with actual dialogue, chit-chat in a movie, which I generally try to avoid. Um, And so this sort of direct engagement with me and the camera and the, a subject in that way is very important. I like for the audience to also be able to maybe make eye contact with uh, the subjects. Um, and so that, that that's a big part of it. I like to look at people. Um, but also I'm thinking a lot about other art forms as well, obviously photography, but more specifically uh, painting um, in that I'm very much interested in the idea of these portraits existing as... Um, works of art unto themselves, like, you know, so the frames, they're very important to me in the way they work, so like with Fluid Frontiers, for instance, um, I was very, very, very much thinking about the paintings of an artist, Carrie um, James Marshall, um, and just kind of these big, bold, beautiful, just portraits of black people in in landscapes, where you see a lot of the landscape in their, their big portraits, and I wanted to kind of do something along those lines. Uh, yeah, I'm much more interested in the way that the work relates usually to other mediums than 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 film. And so the idea of portraiture and the traditional sense of um, what that means is something that I'm always kind of um, interested in. And so, you know, the way that I'm using color or separating, you know, like depth of field or whatever, um, but also just content, information in the frame. So I'm all trying to get that all together. And with Fluid Frontiers, I wanted it to be uniform. The concept originally was for it to be a little bit more structuralist than it was where it would just be relentless take after take after take with the precise framing. And then I loosened up from that. But, uh, you know, I shot, I do all the work by myself and that was a big camera. And so a lot of the framing was just like kind of using this big 16 millimeter camera and just in my lap. And like,
0: yeah. Maybe for the end to tell us a little bit about titles. I, uh, I read that Fluid Frontiers came from the publication. Maybe a bit about also American Hunger. So, yeah.
1: yeah, both titles um, from today's program actually are from books, uh, from other books I read. Fluid Frontiers um, is a collection, a wonderful collection of essays about the Detroit River border, which I was just talking about. But what was really fascinating about the book for me, um, because again, um, in American Hunger, we talk, or there's a quote about the fiction of historic time, which is a quote by Hollis Frampton. And it's not obviously the idea that there's no history, um, but that We only know so much, and then we create these massive narratives around the slivers that we know of uh, what actually has happened on this planet. And for instance, something I didn't know was that at different points, slavery was legal in Canada and illegal in Detroit, and then it would flip-flop, you know? And so the laws would change all the time around what was legal and illegal. And the essays center on the fact that, you know, People like to paint this picture of abolitionists liberating these people and getting them to Canada, when in actuality, these are very pragmatic people who are saying, well, okay, we'll live in Canada, but we might have to go back. And so the fluid frontier isn't just the water, but it's the thinking of the people that have to negotiate these frontiers in very fluid ways, you know, so they can be free. Um, So that's kind of that that title. Um, American Hunger was originally the title of um, a book that ended up being called Black Boy, which is an awful title, which is a a book written by um, important African-American novelist Richard Wright, um who had written a book um, um Native Son uh prior to that um very important book and then he he wrote a sort of autobiography about you know how he became a, a a novelist which for him was this deep desire to just obtain knowledge and information in a place where he was basically not permitted to learn how to read and write very well only in a very functional way and so he was always actively trying to educate himself um my concept was a bit different, and his title was originally, it was meant to be American Hunger. The editors um, and publishers thought that was too radical for a black American to be talking this way in 1950-whatever or something, and so they said, how about we call it Black Boy, and it sold well, and you know, they made money off of it, so there you go, but that original title was always really compelling, and for me, the concept wasn't so much a hunger for education, which of course is there, but i really thought of this idea of american hunger really being about and not just african americans americans in general um this real identity crisis that i think as a country we're all really trying to define ourselves and pushing it to the extremes of individualism and it's i think this hunger that will never be quenched to be whole and understanding ourselves and it's always this very externalized thing because you know like uh you know people here you mostly come from whatever country you come from but in the united states you know what you know people are like white or black or whatever you know they're not and it's and it's something that i think is so deeply ingrained in the culture that it's like it's in the one on one hand why we create so much that's always like you know this obsession with innovation in terms of the arts but on the other hand it has i think this sort of darker side that's like about not knowing who one is, and so it's like an obsession. Um, It's like this constant appetite for for being individuals, you know, yeah.
0: Well, that's a good way to end. (laughs) Okay, any questions, maybe? Last chance? Oh, Tony.
1: Sure, sure. Um, Before I made films, I... um, DJ'd. I was started DJing when I was a, a teenager. Um, and at that time, it was, you know, all, all, all vinyl and that sort of a thing. And so there was a whole culture of, like, not only just being into music, but you had to, like, literally know where to go to find this stuff and, like, walk around. And, and you know, and it, there was no internet really either. To, I mean, there, it was there, but it wasn't what it is today. So you couldn't find out much about where to go. And so, you know, in hip-hop, that's digging, right? And you would learn how to, like, kind of go out and sniff around for stuff and find things and collect things um, and then, you know, repurpose them and that sort of a thing. So I feel like that's always been a part of what I've been doing. Um, something that happened when I started to transition into making video was that automatically being black in America and having been a DJ, it's like, okay, so you're making these, like, hip-hop-like things and it's that the video is about... DJing, and I would get really frustrated because it's like, I don't see why I can't just make work that's not through this very specific lens, um, no pun intended. And then later when I got into 16mm film, I was so relieved by the fact that it doesn't record sound. And so I found that the images had a, a, a blank slate and suddenly my background in music became interesting to me again because it's like I started to think of the sound that I use. Like I edit my films generally silent. There's no soundtrack and then I build all of the sound. In my mind, it's all a score, you know, which, um, yet again, I kind of found a lot of my ideas around art independently and then studied them. And so, again, I wasn't aware of, you know, um, music concrète and these sorts of things. Like, I didn't know that that was thought of, you know. I'd obviously heard the sounds, but I wasn't really thinking about it. So I was already starting to put together. In my mind, it was all like hip-hop. In hip-hop, it's like they're just sounds. It doesn't really matter what they are. It's about the assemblage of sounds and how they work together. And so I would build my scores up by just using, you know, the sound of the ocean, a trumpet here, sample something and loop it, these sorts of things, and, um, and kind of build them in a way that I could just listen to those pieces um, outside of even looking at the images. And the same for the images, that I can watch my films without hearing anything. And when I feel satisfied, that's kind of when I know I'm, I'm finished. Um, and so that's generally how I approach sound. For Fluid Frontiers... Um, something that I had never done. With each part of the suite, I tried to technically teach myself a different skill because I do all the work myself, editing, shooting, et cetera. And I'd never made a sync sound film in 16. And so for that one, um, I thought, you know what, I should shoot something in sync sound. And so the sound for that was very much about just getting these voices um, in sync. And um, I've always been a big like, Wu-Tang Clan fan. I grew up in that era And there is a uh, sort of mastermind behind it. He's very articulate about how he was arranging his music when they were coming up. And I've always been obsessed with his idea. It's actually, he sounds exactly like Duke Ellington when he's talking, but that, you know, like with Duke Ellington, it's this idea that the orchestrations are for the specific people in the band. If somebody quits the band and somebody else is on trumpet, then you're gonna change the arrangement to suit that situation. And with Wu Tang, same thing. It's like, you know, if they're making a song, he's actually listening to, not necessarily who has the proper verse for it, but the way that the voices work in terms of energy. Um, And so you have someone who's, you know, more calm and very legible lyricist, and then they have, you know, someone like ODBs is like kind of crazy and wild. And those energies. And so in editing that film, I was very much not so much this poem and that poem, but I want somebody loud and bombastic, and I want someone maybe more reserved. I want someone who's fumbling with the words, followed by someone who's maybe more like a poet, you know, and to kind of build that up also more like a score instead of like content, you know. The idea of content and information is kind of boring to me, so I'm trying to find other ways to negotiate those inevitable things that don't revolve around logic per se, yeah.
0: Anyone else?
1: Yeah. Thank you for, for asking that. Um, yeah, the silence usually happens in a moment where I'm really, really struggling with what sound could be somewhere, which then obviously opens up the question, why does that image have to have a sound? So like in uh, American Hunger, for instance, you know, I'm spending some time in these... Sl- Slave forts, and you're you're down in a slave fort. Like, what's the sound of people hold up? You know, it, there's there's no sound for that, really. You know, so it's like, and it would be corny to have gospel music or chains going like this. You know, it's been done a billion times before. So, yeah, and so that that sort of thing, and the same with, uh, fluid frontiers. At points, it's like, sometimes you just need a break. You know, it's like you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: On those, that particular run of images, uh, yes, um, I am. Well, that that is a, it's an RE uh, sixteen millimeter camera, if anyone's familiar. So they're much larger than a Bolex. So yeah, I was trying to hold it there. Um, that specific church. Was what was considered a terminal point on the Underground Railroad. Um, And if you go to that part of Canada, um, you know, the floor will look something like the floor here, um, but you'll see sometimes like lines in the floor. And these churches would have trap doors where um, if they knew slave raiders were coming to you know, pick up people and send them back to the United States, they would sing certain uh, spirituals or songs, um, and those songs would signify that the slave traders are coming, go down into the basement. And um, so when I had gotten to to Canada to start shooting the the film, um, I didn't know anyone, had no context. Like I was saying, I was just asking random people to participate in my film. And usually with a project like that, it's a good idea to start at a church um, and meet people um, because there's inevitably some sort of community connection there. I had no idea the history of that particular church. I just knew that it was the local, like, black church. And I just happened to go in, and right off the bat, a woman kind of walked right into the front of the church, like, during service into this weirdly enough, performance about Harriet Tubman that culminated in going to this trap door, and I thought, whoa, I came to the right place, you know? Um, And some of the readers are people who go to that church, but in the way that it works in the film, again, I'm not so much thinking in terms of logic and information, but more rhythmically and physiologically about it, what's, what's happening, and so that particular set of images is also about recontextualizing some of the poetry in ways that are obviously confusing for an audience, but the rhythm of giving breathing room and the duration of those shots and the type of imagery, et cetera, are what I'm more interested in, right? And so that there's some relationship between the idea of church and these people and this poetry, then this is the church where such and such happened on this day, you know, that sort of a thing. And so that's that's kind of that that run. The actual the two shots before that, the camera was accidentally running for both of them, but I liked those shots very much and, uh, and they fit rhythmically what I was interested in. And so um, they're shots of the house that I was staying in while I was working. And so it's all very autobiographical. When I watch the work, I see something very different. And so it's one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, that fork I ate with or whatever, you know. Um, the mirror I looked at myself in, anything like that, you know, it's all, it's all, it's all in there somehow.
0: Okay. I think we should wrap it up. I think we're a bit late. Thank you very much. Thank you all.
1: Thank you.